Um, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament of the Bible, the first of the four Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, We're turning to Matthew chapter 5. And if you're using one of these paperback Bibles, I think that's on page 689. My, my older son Joshua and I right now are reading through The Silver Chair, which is one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And so The Silver Chair comes right after Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in which Lucy and Edmund, these, these children who are in a number of these stories, they are whisked away to Narnia and they go on a sailing adventure with their cousin, Eustace Scrub who is just as bad as his name sounds, at least when that begins. He's quite a pest at the beginning of Dawn Treader. He's complaining, entitled. He's always getting into fights with everybody. But he, in Narnia, has an encounter with Aslan, the great lion, and begins to become a different sort of boy. And in the silver chair, he's returned to our world. He's returned to his school. The school term has begun. And another student, Jill Pohl, has noticed a difference in him. This is what he says. Wash out last term if you can, said Eustace. I was a different chap then. I was, gosh, what a little tick I was. Well, honestly, you were, said Jill. You think there's been a change then, said Eustace. It's not only me, said Jill. Everyone's been saying so. They've noticed it. They is like the bullies of the school. They've noticed it. Eleanor Blackiston heard Adela Pennyfeather talking about it in our changing room yesterday. She said, someone's got hold of that scrub kid. He's quite unmanageable this term. We shall have to attend to him next. Eustace gave a shudder. Everyone in Experiment House, that's his school, knew what it was like being attended to by them. Both children were quiet for a moment. The drops dripped off the laurel leaves. Why were you so different last term, said Jill presently. Eustace has a foot in two worlds. He's living in this world with its school terms and teachers and bullies, but now he also belongs to Narnia. And the values of that world have begun to change the way he lives in this world. And that's a picture of what happens to everyone who becomes a Christian. When we trust in Jesus, we begin to belong to his kingdom, what he he calls here the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't take us out of the world, but he changes the way we live in it. He changes our ambitions. He changes our relationships. He changes what we treasure. He changes us. When Jesus is your king, your life will stand out. And every church, every gathering of Christians like Sunrise will stand out too. It should be the experience of everyone who comes and visits a church on a Sunday, comes and visits us on a Sunday, that they leave thinking, there's something different about those people. And like Jill Pohl, they'll wonder, what is it? What makes them so different? The passage we're going to be looking at this morning, Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12, what the Christians have historically called the Beatitudes, it's Jesus unpacking of what makes his people stand out. It's his description of how the people who belong to the kingdom will live in this world. It's Jesus' description of what it is to be a Christian. So please follow along As I read Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Jesus speaking. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we, as we approach your word, I'm just aware, as I am every week, as I think many of us are every week, that, um, that n- no sermon can do justice to what you have spoken. Your words are truth. Your words are life. Your words are power. And so I pray, God, that, that you would allow us this morning to have an encounter with you in your word. And that you would, in this time, speak to us. You'd help us to hear from you and that you would shape us into the people you have called us to be, into the people who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we ask that you would do it for the praise of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Now we began looking at the Beatitudes two weeks ago. We looked just at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we saw in that that the Beatitudes, when Jesus tells us, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, he's not telling us how to get into the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying, if you want to belong to me, you need to be meek and merciful and a peacemaker, and then I'll love you and let you in. He's saying, if you belong to me by grace, the kingdom comes to the poor in spirit. It comes to those who know they are totally spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God. They have messed up everything he gave them, and they just fall on his mercy. The kingdom comes to the poor in spirit. The kingdom comes by grace. He says, once you belong to the kingdom, this is what I will make you to be. This is what you will be changed. This is how you will be shaped. This is what you will become. And he says that this life, poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, that this is the good life. Nine times he calls it blessed happy, flourishing. He says, this life, the mourning, this life that nobody in the world would think would be a wonderful thing, that's actually the happiest life you can imagine. It is the most blessed life. It's the, when you can see things the way I see things, you'll see that you are the envy of the universe because of the life that I'll give you. No one earns the kingdom. We receive it as a gift, but the gift changes us. And we want to look this morning at this this good life Jesus says we'll receive. So we're going to look at three marks in this passage of a Christian. Three marks of those living the happy life of the kingdom. Jesus says that that Christians will seek God hungrily, serve others humbly, and endure suffering hopefully. So first, Christians seek God hungrily. Now before I show you that in the passage, I want to show you a little bit of how this passage works. How the internal logic, how Jesus structured what he was saying. So I want you to look, the Beatitudes have bookends, okay? There's a beginning and an end. I want you to look at verse 3 first, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, move your eyes right down to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see how those verses end the same way? That's a way Jesus is telling us 
that everything between them has to do with the same thing. It's all about what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven. They're bookends. So verse 3 shows us who enters the kingdom, the poor in spirit. And verse 10 shows us what will eventually happen sooner or later to every Christian. Persecution, which we'll get to in a little bit. And in between are six descriptions of a Christian, some of which primarily describe the way we relate to God, and some of which describe the way we relate to each other. And they're they're braided, they're interchanged, they're, they're mixed up together. So look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, who mourn over their sin. That has to do with how we relate to God. But then the next verse, blessed are the meek, that has to do with how we relate to each other. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, it's how we relate to God. But then blessed are the pure, blessed are the merciful. That's, that's horizontal, right? You see how these Love for God and love for people, it's braided together. It's intertwined. Jesus is showing us that you, you can't have one without the other, right? The life of the person who lives in the kingdom will be characterized by love for God and love for people, and you can't have one without the other. But, so we can make this a little clear, I want to sort of unbraid that this morning and look at both threads. Look at what Jesus is saying about how Christians relate to God and how Christians relate to each other. So what describes our relationship to God We seek him hungrily. So look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus says that Christians mourn. And that mourning comes right out of being poor in spirit. Christians mourn because we know we're not what we ought to be. We know we should be like God. We should be good like God and honest like God and compassionate like God. And we mourn to see how little we measure up. Our landlord recently built a sandbox for our boys, which was incredibly kind of him. He just built a simple wooden frame. We put it right on the ground and then filled it with sand. But because we didn't put a liner down or anything underneath it, weeds are coming up through the sand. And so it's, it's a lesson. Every time we go out there to, uh, to play in the sandbox, the boys have to learn to weed. And so I've been teaching them that like, if, they, if you really want to get this thing out, you can't just pull the leaf off. You have to dig through the sand and then pull it up by the root. The reason why Christians mourn is that they've traced their sins down to the root. They know that when they speak unkindly or fume with anger or when they mislead their boss, those aren't just mistakes. They're not just one-off errors in judgment. They're an expression of something deeply wrong with us. The reason we lie is that being well thought of is more important to us than the truth. The reason we get frustrated and impatient with our kids is that our comfort is more important to us than their well-being. The reason we gossip is because it feels good to compare ourselves favorably to people in hard situations. We do wrong because we are wrong. The root of our sins is sin, and it's a problem. And God deserves better. God made us to live for him. He loves us, and he cares for us. And every day, we live for ourselves. We break his heart. We don't want to, but we do, and so we mourn. Some of you are there right now. I know you are. You feel like total failures in your relationship with God, in your relationship with your family. 
and you're grieving it. And Jesus says to you, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Your sin, your sadness over your sin will lead to comfort because only those who know how bad they are can appreciate how amazing God's forgiveness is. Jesus died for sinners, for those who mourn. And the flip side of mourning our sin is what Jesus calls in verse 6, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Once you see how far short you fall, you will long to be what God calls you to be. When, when you hunger and thirst for something, you don't just want it, right? You need it. When I, was, when I was a teenager, I went on a fishing trip with the Wendell men to Canada. And we went to a lake that wasn't super remote, but it was remote enough that you had to come in on a seaplane. And my dad is an absolutely amazing trip planner. And so he planned all of our food down to the very last meal so the morning we were supposed to leave, we had our breakfast, that was it. And then it was so rainy that the plane couldn't come in. And so we had no lunch. And then we had no dinner. And then we had no breakfast. And then we had no lunch again. And then the plane finally was able to come in the next day. And, and that isn't real hunger, not compared to what many people in the world experience, but it was enough to give me a hint of what Jesus means by hungering for righteousness. When you hunger for something, you can't stop thinking about it. The pain of your hunger reminds you. Someone who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness longs. They need to live a life pleasing to God. No other ambition competes. So they'll forego a promotion if it's going to interfere, interfere with their growing in God. They'll, they'll sacrifice a relationship if it interferes. Their dream for their life isn't tied to a certain amount of money or a certain retirement or a certain family situation. Their dream is to become like Jesus. And Jesus says they will. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They won't stay how they are. They will become like Jesus. And he makes this picture even clearer in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Their hearts aren't divided. The pure in heart, it, it means that you're not, you're not mixed. You're not divided. You're not trying to get all these different things. There's one thing that controls you, one thing that drives you. And what it is, is the thing he says that they'll receive. They shall see God. That's the one thing their heart seeks. And this is one of the great tests of the reality of our faith. Does that verse assure you of something you deeply want? Do you long not mainly for what Jesus can give you, for what God can give you, but for God himself? Seeing him face to face, knowing him as he is. Do you want to see the beauty of his goodness, the love in his eyes, to know that you're eternally welcome with him? The greatest good of heaven is not the absence of death or the absence of evil or the absence of sadness. The greatest good of heaven is the presence of God, knowing him perfectly forever. That's what Christians long for. And Jesus says, we're blessed because it will be ours. So Christians seek God hungrily and it makes us stand out. We won't, we won't live for money or for leisure or for a relationship or for reputation. We'll live for him. Does that describe you? The second mark of those who belong to the kingdom is Christians serve others humbly. So we looked at one of these threads, right, running through the Beatitudes, this thread of how we relate to God. But let's look at the other. Look at verse 5. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are, verse 7, the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So being poor in spirit changes the way we relate to God, right? We hunger for him, and it also changes the way we relate to each other. And the first way Jesus describes how the person who's poor in spirit relates to others, verse 5, is meek. And meekness has gotten a bad rap. Um, when we think of someone who's meek, we think of someone who's, who's weak, who's timid and, and full of self-doubt, someone who's always apolo- apologizing and letting other people kind of run their life. I think of, have you guys seen Back to the Future, the first one? George McFly, who's this really like, he's just nerdy and he's weak and Biff Tannen is just always like twisting his arm and making him go along. We think of, we think of that when we think of meek. But meekness isn't weakness. And we know that because Jesus describes himself as meek. When he says later in Matthew, he says he's gentle and lowly in heart. That word gentle is meek. Jesus describes himself as meek. But Jesus isn't weak. Jesus goes into the temple and he flips over the tables. Right? Jesus stands before kings and governors without fear. Meekness isn't weakness. It's humility. It's treating others like they're more important than you are. So have you ever noticed how much of your thinking revolves around yourself? Your spouse asks you to do something, and your immediate thought is not, oh, good, I was hoping there was something I could do for you. Your, your immediate thought is, don't I already do enough around here? Or your kids misbehave, and you don't think, oh, I just have such compassion for you. You're caught in sin. I just want to pray for you right now. Your first thought is, do you know what kind of day I've had, and now you're doing this? Right? We... We encounter every situation in the day thinking about what I need, what I want, what I deserve. You don't need to nod to tell me I'm right. I know it's true because it's true of me too. But meekness is the opposite. Meekness isn't focused on how much less I have than I deserve, but how much more I have than I deserve. Meekness isn't thinking how I can serve myself, but how I can serve you. Meek Meek people look you in the eye And they listen and they give you their full attention because they're not already thinking about what they're going to say as soon as they have a chance. They're actually caring about you. Meek people stop what they're doing and they make time for you. They stop what they're doing and they help because your needs are every bit as important to them as their needs. But we have a fear about meekness. And our fear is, if I just... If I just make my life about other people, if I'm just always giving and serving and listening, then who's going to take care of me? Who's going to meet my needs? And Jesus says that God will. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's all going to be ours. You can give and give and give and never run out because God takes care of us. We inherit the earth. And being meek leads naturally to, in verse 7, being merciful. Once you're no longer the center of your own life, you can actually begin to see the needs in the lives of the people around you. Mercy is love reaching out to the miserable. It's seeing someone in a difficult situation and being moved by compassion, not just to feel bad, but actually to act for them, to work for them, to serve them. Mercy isn't a feeling. It's something you show. It's something you do. And I wonder how seriously we take this. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And that doesn't mean that you can earn God's mercy by being merciful. If it was, it wouldn't be mercy. But it means that those who have really received the mercy of God will show mercy to other people. They will see in people who are hurting themselves, right? They'll remember 
When I was dead in sin, when I was lost, when I had nothing, God saw me, he loved me, and he acted for me, and I can see myself in you. I'm going to act for you. He says that mercy will come to those who have been shown mercy. So do you, see, do you show mercy? When you see needs in our community, does your heart go out and do your hands go out? And one of the hard questions I asked myself this week was, if we as a church disappeared from Cayman, Sunrise Community Church, gone. If we disappeared from Cayman, would suffering people notice? Would they know we were gone? Do we make a tangible enough difference in the hurts of this country that if we left, people would miss us? One of the best tests of whether you're merciful is how you respond to those who sin against you. The merciful are quick to forgive. They know how far, far short they themselves fall, so they see themselves in those who sin against them. And, and here, here's the thing, isn't this true? Sin makes people miserable, right? When someone is caught in sin, they're miserable. And, and if we're merciful, if we're meek, then we can see their misery and we're more moved with compassion by the fact that they're caught in sin than we are offended that the sin is against us. And the meek don't just show mercy. They also, verse 9, make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, he says. They don't, they don't fake peace, right? There's a, way of, there's a way of living at peace that's really just pretending like everything's fine. You don't, you don't address the thing that's causing the conflict. You, just, you speak civilly. You just go about your business. That's not real peace. He's not saying blessed are the peace fakers, but blessed are the peacemakers. When Christians are at fault, they ask forgiveness. When they're sinned against, they forgive. When people they care about are in conflict, they move in to help reconcile things, to make peace. They're not constantly quarreling with their boss or their coworkers or their spouse or their children. They learn to leave things unsaid and undone that aren't helpful for making peace. Christians don't just seek God humbly, they serve others humbly. They've seen how empty they are without God, how far short they fall, and it's broken their self-centeredness so that they can live at peace with others and meet the needs of others. Don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to be the person in your office that people know they can go to with their problems because they know that they can talk to you without being judged? Don't you want to be the person your friends know they can call because they know that you love them enough to, stop, to drop whatever you're doing and come? Don't you, don't you want it to be said by someone visiting our church on a Sunday, I can't say I agree with everything they believe, but I was loved there. They saw me and they cared for me. And if by God's grace we do become a church increasingly marked by seeking God and loving others, if we really look different, some people will be attracted to that and some people will be repelled, which is why we need to see the third mark of those who live in the kingdom. Jesus says, Christians endure suffering, hopefully. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now there's a fascinating story later in the gospel accounts. So Jesus and his disciples are in a boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee. And there, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the Gentile side, they encounter a man who's oppressed by evil spirits. And Jesus, as he always does, in power, casts the spirits out. They go 
fascinatingly, but we can't get into it, into a herd of pigs. The pigs rush down the hillside. They're drowned in the lake. That, that is interesting, but that's not where I want you to focus. What I want you to think about is what happens after that. There are two reactions to that miracle. So the guy who's been set free, the guy who Jesus has delivered, he begs Jesus. Mark tells us that he begs Jesus to be with him. He wants to follow him. He wants to become a disciple. He begs him to go with him. But he says, Mark tells us that the people in the surrounding area, they come to Jesus and they beg him to leave. Two reactions to the same miracle. One sees Jesus, hears him, wants to be with him, wants to follow him. Others see Jesus, they hear him, they want nothing to do with it. And that's how it will be for us as well. If our lives are shaped by the kingdom, if we fit this profile, then some people are going to be intrigued. They're going to want to know more. They might come along to community group. They might come along to church. They might ask you, like Jill asked Eustace, what what made you so different last term? But other people will see it and they'll hear it and they'll want nothing to do with it. And they'll gossip about us at work and they'll antagonize us online. They might, we might say and do things because we follow Jesus that hinder our advancement at work. We might say and do things because we follow Jesus that lose friendships. We don't aim to offend. We aim to make peace. But at some point, the way we live may, will, provoke a negative response. And when that happens, Jesus says, we're blessed Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Following Jesus is not an easy life. It involves mourning and meekness. It involves doing and saying unpopular things. It involves being misunderstood and misrepresented. It's not an easy life. But Jesus says that Christians are the most blessed, the most happy of all people because of our hope. He says, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. I've been reading a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor during the Second World War. And um, Bonhoeffer, at a time when many German Christians were either kind of going along with the Nazis and hoping something was going to change or just kind of quietly disagreeing, Bonhoeffer spoke out publicly on behalf of the Jews. And he, he even got involved in the resistance against Hitler. And for it, he was imprisoned and later executed. He was hanged. And a doctor who was present at Bonhoeffer's execution wrote, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Now, right before he was transferred to the last place where he's going to be executed, he sent word to a friend of his in England. These are the last recorded words we have from him. He wrote, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. He knew he was going to his death and he was saying, for me, now it all starts. His hunger for righteousness and his humble service of others cost him everything. And the way he did it, the way he endured suffering was with hope. He was absolutely sure that his real reward was in heaven. Christians will not fit in in this world. 
We may have many blessings here. We may have great relationships here, but we will never fully belong. But there is a world where we do belong. There is a world where all these promises are completely fulfilled forever. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. Bonhoeffer was confident in the reality of that world, the kingdom of heaven. It has begun now, but when Jesus comes, it will be fully realized forever. If we were sure of that reality, this is the life we would live here. It would be so much easier. But how can we be sure? Now remember, the Beatitudes describe the good life, right? The blessed life, the happy life, the life of those who live in the kingdom. But when you face these, these calls, it seems impossible, doesn't it? I mean, who really mourns sin as they should? Who really lives as though others are more important than themselves? Whose longing to please God is so intense, it's like hunger pains? Only one person. Only Jesus lived the Beatitudes. He was poor in spirit. He was pure in heart. He showed perfect mercy. He made perfect peace. But at the end of his life, instead of being comforted, he was left alone. Instead of inheriting the earth, he was lifted up from it. Instead of being satisfied, he said, I thirst. He wasn't shown mercy. He sought God's face and couldn't see it. Jesus lived the Beatitudes perfectly and yet forfeited all the promises on the cross so that they could come to us. The kingdom of heaven is not for those who do all these things perfectly. It's for the poor in spirit, those who know they've totally messed up. It's for those who mourn that they are not what they should be. It's for those who recognize they don't deserve these things and they cast themselves on the mercy of God. These beatitudes are not about how to get into the love of God, but about what the love of God will transform you to be. When you see that Jesus suffered and died so that all of this will be true of you, you will be changed. Listen, Christians will live differently in this world because they're living for a different world. When you belong to the kingdom of heaven, you change. You gain an unshakable hope beyond this world. And because you need less from this world, you're freed to give more. You can serve others. You can show mercy. You can make peace. The people of the kingdom should be and will be the best neighbors, the best employees, the best spouses. And sooner or later, someone will ask us what made us so different. And when they do, what good news we'll have for them. Let's pray. Our Savior, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you, you're the hero of history and the hero of this passage, that you have done perfectly what we could never come close to, and you did it for us that you have accomplished everything so that we can belong to the kingdom. We don't belong in your kingdom. We're selfish and cold-hearted and ambitious in ways that we shouldn't be.
We don't tell the truth. We don't live as examples that we should be. God, we know that all these things are true, but you have seen us perfectly and you have had mercy on us. And you have acted for us in a way that we can't even begin to conceive of. You gave your son's life so that we could belong to your kingdom, so we could be called sons of God. And I pray that you would profoundly humble us through seeing what you've done and that you would shape us through that to be people who live distinctly in this world, not so people will praise us, not so people will notice us, but so people will praise you and notice you. God, make us the church, make us the family you want us to be by your grace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.